The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, where they arrived there. And now from Genesis chapter 5. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And now our New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 4. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are, July the 4th, 2021, in lockdown in Sydney. And I've got to tell you, I can't even imagine how the Reverend Richard Johnson from the First Fleet, how he would process this moment. However, he has his lot and we have ours. So let's get to it. So I watched the 1990s uh, movie City Slickers uh, this week, lockdown and on holidays with my teenager. It's a Billy Crystal classic and it rates 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
In it, uh, the cowboy Curly tells Billy Crystal the secret of life, which is not found in Colorado, uh, which is good to hear on July 4th, but in this. One thing, and no one knows that one thing, but you, and you just have to find out what it is by living your life. Have a watch of the scene. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. Now, at the risk of taking a fun film and ruining it, I think perhaps the point of the movie is that there is no mega story to live by. There's no one story for everyone in the cinema. There's only your story. That is, there's no external truth that you must reckon yourself to, no God to whom you must bend your will, no meaning except the one you create. That's clear in the movie. No story to locate but your own. And in the movie, the characters apply it to sexual ethics. So one guy says if there are no consequences, then you can just sort of do what you want to. Another guy says, look, if I committed an adultery, then I'd have to live with myself. And the other guy is just lonely. Either way, there's only one story, and that's the one that you choose. Now, Christians do not believe this, not for one second. Stanley Harawas uh, uh, put some theological depth to this idea when he wrote these words. He wrote, the church does not believe that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. Now, look at it. It's a cheeky sentence. There really isn't a story, no grand narrative, but there is the one you choose, but really that's all that there is. And this quote, of course, means Christians don't believe in city slickers, the city slickers philosophy. Listen a little bit more closely. The church does not believe that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. Rather, the church believes that we are creatures of a good God, that's last week, who storied us through engrafting us to the people of Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, end quote. We are creatures of a good God. He's storied us in. He's engrafted us into Israel's story through Jesus Christ. Now, we're on a nine-week journey through the Bible, a series called God's Stops in God's Mega Story. The series is an invitation to enter the world of the Bible, to jump on a very old train to engage in an ancient story, so ancient it predates creation. We'll come to that. In our story, in our series, we'll stop at nine waypoints in that story, stations, if you like. Last week, we looked at the story of creation, and this week, the story of Abraham, which begins in Genesis chapter 12. Rob gave a sermon at St. Philip's in 2015 in which we said these words. He said, the Bible is not simply a flat collection of books all on the same level. There is progress and development within it. And that is because it both tells and is itself part of a story covering millennia. 
Simply put, it is the story of the one true and living God and his purpose to reign as king and to bless his recalcitrant creation and humanity in particular. Today is about that story and that blessing. So four questions if you're following your outline. Number one, what is this stop today? Secondly, why is it our second stop and not say the first or the third? Thirdly, how does the stop lead to the destination, the place we're headed? And fourth, what do those on the train learn from this stop? So firstly, what is this stop? Well, this stop is Abraham. It's a huge stop. It's not central, but it's a big one. Let's say it's, it's Penrith and not Pendle Hill. Let the Sydney sider understand. And it's about God's big promise. It is a reference point, maybe the reference point, for the rest of the Bible. This stop is about an old man called Abram by his loving parents, which means exalted father. The name itself no doubt hurt him, as Abraham and Sarah could not have children. It must have felt for his whole life like a cruel irony that he should be called a father. His name reminding him of what many at Church Hill have gone through, uh, disappointments around family life and children, grandchildren, expectations. But for Abraham, this was in the plans and purposes of God. And it's so much more than a story of one person. If you apply the city slickers philosophy to Abraham, you could say, well, what's the one thing Abraham had to learn? Uh, and that is to trust God. That's his one thing, but yours might be different. So go to Colorado and round up some cows. No, we don't believe that. Abraham is unique, but we're on the train. The, you can call it the Abrahamic train, leading to his offspring, or rather, to one of them. Now, although Abraham is no film star, and yet his story is gripping from beginning to end. Interestingly, today, if you made a movie, it would fit probably in the genre of boomer film. He's an old man when his disappointments are awakened. Although Abraham is no monarch, yet his story is like, very much like a modern royal family with so many public failures. Abraham is no hero. He's called simply to trust God at at least two major points. First, to obey God, his command, God's command, to get up from his land and go. In Genesis 12 verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land that I'll show you. And so begins the story of the land of Israel, east of the Mediterranean, west of the Middle East, where Abraham is from. He is Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in chapter 11, verse 28. Another great historic irony is that Abraham would be an Iraqi if he never moved. Did he get up and go? In Genesis 12, verse 4, we hear, So Abraham went. 
as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, his nephew, his household, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. The writer of Hebrews says he trusted God sight unseen. That's first. Secondly, he had to believe that God would give him and keep him a child. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promised, contrary to all evidence, that this 75-year-old man would become in time a great nation in the land God showed him, that he would be famous throughout the world, his name would be great, and that he would be a blessing to all peoples, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. By the way they treat your seed, your offspring, it's profoundly bold. You say in chapter 12, well, where is the promise of this child? Well, it's there and explicit in chapter 15 where Abram, speaking to God, says in chapter 15, verse 3, Abram says, you've given me no child. And God replies, chapter 15, verse 4, a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then we find out in chapter 15, we heard it a moment ago, God took Abram Outside, You like that? God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be, like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. So the whole thing relies on Abram and Sarai having children, but Abram is 75 and Sarai can't have kids. And there's no Dr. Hughes or any other fertility genius nearby, not that they could have helped. But to cut a a long and profound story short, God puts Abram and Sarah through their own wilderness for 25 years, no kid, no descendants, no miracle, no promise, certainly no blessing to the whole world. So much so that, like so much disappointment, that halfway through they take matters into their own hands in chapter 16, sensing Margaret Atwood's Atwood's desire for dystopia. They use a slave girl to bear a child, Ishmael, and they treat her like dirt. I said it would be like a modern royal family, but you should know that God takes care of Hagar and Ishmael. There's so much disappointment that when three visitors come to see them in chapter 17, it's a theophany, an appearance of God. The Lord appears and visits Abram and reiterates the promise. And Sarai, from, a, you know, from outside the tent, laughs. She quietly laughs with derision rather than delight. Abram is renamed Abraham in that chapter from exalted father to father of many in anticipation of a nation belonging to God. But when the child is born a year later in chapter 21, they name the child Isaac, which means laughter. For God has turned the derision of cynicism, 
to the, the light of faith, of this miracle. And he can do that for us too in, in other ways. And later, famously, God tests Abraham in chapter 22 uniquely. That's important to say. God says to Abraham, give him up. Trust me, give him up. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, which was empty then, but later part of Jerusalem, near where the temple would be built. God stays the hand of Abraham, but that moment happened right near where the child of the promise, God's only son, whom he loves, would eventually die. We're told by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In other words, he trusts God. Now, what is this stop? Well, it's the second stop in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it's our second stop, where God says through the descendants of Abraham, through his seed, There will be blessing to the whole world, a reversal of the curse for all those who bless that descendant. Robert Forsyth, from his sermon uh, in 2015, he goes on, To be more precise, the gospel is the story of how God, who is the creator of all things, makes promises to a particular wandering sheikh sometime early 2nd millennia BC, and he concludes a pact with the nation that are his descendants, and out of that people brings forth the man who would be both the judge and the hope of all humanity, Jesus Christ. That's the stop. Now, why then is this our second stop and not the first or the third? Well, thanks for asking the question. On one level, it could be our first stop. After all, Christianity is an Abrahamic faith. There is some sense in which the specific story starts here, or it could be the third or fourth stop. Some people really want to stop at the stop at the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. Rowan mentioned that last week, and Noah, whom God makes a covenant with, he could be a stop in the in the mega story. So why is this our second stop? Well, on one level, time, we only have nine weeks. But on another level, it makes sense. We need the first stop, the story of creation, to begin the Mecca story. A lot of people think that Christianity is a religion founded by Jesus as Abraham founded Judaism or Muhammad founded Islam. And so we write off all religions as late, new, really, in terms of the history of the world. Another irony that our most ancient treasures are now considered sort of new or late. But no, the Bible is not just a book spanning 4,000 years, but rather it tells the story of millions of years. It tells the story from, from eternity and into eternity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who was, who is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. And so this first shot, this story of creation is about the God who made everything and he, he owns it all. And he owns you. It's what makes the basis for the promise to Abraham. It's what gives the promise to Abraham meaning. So you can't say, well, God has nothing to do with me. I don't believe him. He has nothing to do with me. He has something to do with you, whether you like it or not. 
He's the creator. You may as well say, I have no parents, as say, I have no God. You do, even if you don't want to know them. I say that knowing there's difficulties, of course, with loss of parents. We could have stopped at the story of Noah, but Noah is part of the creation stop, the first stop, since God uncreates his recalcitrant creation and starts it up again through a covenant to Noah. It's a resurrection story, really, of both people and of creation. This is why Abraham is our second stop. Thirdly, how does the stop then lead to our destination? Well, we are, as we pointed out last week, on the way somewhere. The train is heading somewhere. To understand this stop or any stop, we need to know the terminus, or better, what is Central Station. Central Station is Jesus. The Bible moves towards Jesus and from Jesus to the world on mission. And the Father has always planned it this way. Rob showed us last week from Romans 11 verse 36 of God, all things from him and through him and for him. And yet of the Son of Jesus, Paul writes something similar in Colossians 1 verse 16, for in him all things were created of Jesus. All things have been created through him and for him, he is the eternal son. Jesus is grand central. And we can say that even though there were many writers of the Bible, many genres over many millennia, most of it before Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you know, Lord of the Rings had one author over 12 years. The Bible has many authors over millennia. And yet like the Lord of the Rings. It in fact has one author, God's Spirit, and one primary subject, and his name is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, and that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's fair to say that half the New Testament is working out how this child of Abraham, this Jesus, is the fulfilment of that promise and what it means. Jesus said, one greater than Abraham is here. Paul argues that the promise is to Abraham's seed, singular, referring to Jesus. God is keeping his promise to reclaim the world that he has made through Abraham's now great name, ahead of not just that land then, but of the whole earth renewed. First through justification of sins. That's the Romans reading, Romans chapter 4. It's self a miracle. Forgiveness is a miracle. Like giving birth to a child when you're, when you're, when you're 90 years old. That's, that's forgiveness and that's the grace of God. And then through resurrection and the renewal of all things. That's hope. This is our gospel. This is love. And all you have to do in the story is bless Abraham's seed, meaning side with him. You have to trust Jesus. You have to have a faith relationship to God, a trust relationship like Abraham. 
in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. And in doing so, Abraham became the father, not just of Jewish people, but of many, of all who believed like him. Fourth, then, uh, what uh, do those who are on the train learn from this stop? Well, the first thing you need to learn is get on board. Get on board. If you're not on the train, well, you are, because the whole creation's heading. You need to be in Christ. You need to get on board the train. The whole universe is heading in this direction. This is the right side of history. You want to be on that train. Paul said you are right with God by faith alone, not by works, not by Jewish markers. Just believe. Hope against hope that God can do what he promised to save you. So really, the first thing to learn is you need to be like Abraham. And this is not blind faith, by the way. But rather, it is the confident, strong belief that the one who's making the promise can keep the promise. In Romans chapter 4, God can bless you with the forgiveness of your sins. It's called justification, and it's good news. You think, well, of course God would do that. I'm not so bad, and he's quite cuddly. No, it's a miracle on the same scale as a as a hundred year old man and a ninety year old woman having a baby. Against all hope, we believe. And when we do, God says, This one is mine. This one righteous. I believe in miracles, especially the miracle of justification. And I believe the whole world will be blessed. I believe in what Jesus called the renewal of all things for the children of Abraham, for those on the train, for those in Christ. First, believe. Second, I need to reconstruct my life. I'm not looking for my one thing. I'm looking for God's thing. Seek first the kingdom, everything else will be given to you. What God says, I believe, and so I reorder my life. I reconstruct my life according to his will. In the end, Abraham's story is my story. It's our collective story. I'm on this train, we're on this train, and it's not the train of my own choosing. Stanley Harawas goes on, Christians do not believe that we get to choose our own story. We don't, we don't believe that we get to choose our own story, but rather we discover that God has called us to participate in a story that is not of our own making. That is why we're called into the church, as well as why we're called Christian of Christ. A church so formed cannot help but be a challenge to a social order built on the contrary presumption that I get to make my life up. We, we then live so differently that we become a blessing to others as we point people to the gospel of God. Third, we need to then go deeper into this story. That's what this series is about. Deeper into the gospel, deeper into the scriptures, deeper into God. Bruce uh, Waltke uh, wrote this. He said, The consequence of a general ignorance about the Old Testament among the people of God is a pervasive reduction of the full message of the New Testament to a basic gospel of atonement and individual ethics. Jesus died for me. I better not lie. 
He writes, I suspect many Christians feel spiritually undernourished, undernourished because they live out their lives on the basis of about 10 biblical texts. In other words, your, your favourite Bible verses. I had a mentor when I was at university who said something similar. He said, the reason we have such a light grasp of God's love is that we reduce the love of God to the moment. Do I feel his love now? You are rooted into an oak, an eternal oak of God's love. You are not a reed blown about by the wind. You're part of something bigger, and so you can go deeper. You're not meandering on your own journey trying to find your one thing. You're on a train, a journey, the way of Jesus to one place. So you don't need to meander anymore. You don't need to drive cattle through Colorado or find your one thing that no one else can find. You need the promise of God. You need to believe the promise. You need to have faith. And you need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, all uh, your promises find their yes in Jesus. And that is why we say, we utter our ma, amen, to your glory. We say, so be it. This is just the second stop, but so be it. Show us Jesus Christ. Show us the promise and give us faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.